Leadership Confessions with Phil Rose from Clarity Leadership. Oh, wow, am I excited to introduce today's guest. We've got a real life spook. Sally Walker, 25 years Director of Cybersecurity at GCHQ. Wow, I'm looking forward to interviewing Sal about how she's managed to get that role. Her role was running one of the UK's cyber capability programmes, which required to provide leadership for teams across a number of organisational boundaries, from defence to civil service to the commercial sector. Sal now runs Human Digital Thinking, which is around using cutting-edge technology and the power of human brain to think differently about systematic problems. Human Digital Thinking's focus is on decision-making in big data world, on embracing difference and on leaving a legacy for future generations wherever it is possible to do so. Wow, this is going to be exciting. Sal, welcome. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. It's good to be here. And the other thing I should say for our listeners is you're going to be speaking at our Purposeful Leaders event at Kew Gardens on the 29th of September this year. So thank you for that. We'll talk a little bit about that towards the end. But I guess to kick off, how on earth did you end up being 25 years Director of Cybersecurity at GCHQ? How did that come about? Uh, By accident. All the best stories start by accident, don't they? I joined the civil service straight from university. At that time, there was a selection process for fast track management programs. I think some of those still run. I was given the paperwork by my roommate at college who was despairing of what I might do with my life. (laughs) Sat an exam. People kept walking out of the exam. I was really enjoying myself. And 25 years later, I found myself at the top of the organization running the national cyber program. So yeah, it was an extraordinary journey, not an expected one. And lots of challenges and learning along the way. And I guess that's really what some of the things that I would love to dig into today is that the challenges, the learnings, what you've learned, what you would recommend to other people. And this podcast all about leadership, leadership confessions. When you look at leaders out there in the world today, are there any that sort of stand out for you that you really admire and respect? And who would that be and why? I was pondering this because uh, it's a great question. It's been asked at various times in my career, and I've always come up with slightly surprising answers, I think, because my brain works a little differently. At the moment, the two names that jump off the page for me are number one, Greta Thunberg. Talk about a small but mighty and influence and wants to achieve something, just keeps doing it and seems completely fearless. And I admire that in an individual, uh, especially someone so young, just not recognizing the barriers and the conventional approach and getting her message out and doing so very clearly and effectively. And so she's one. And the other is Jacinda Ardern. And I admire her because of her ability to transmit empathy and calm, even in crisis. I've done a lot of time as a crisis manager within the national security community. And that ability to be calming while all around are in crisis is incredibly powerful. So I think she's breaking barriers. She's leading by example. And most importantly, she's showing it is possible to care and to be considerate at scale. So I don't think it's any coincidence that I admire female leaders. And I would note it is, of course, what I've described there is how they do the job, not what they do or what their belief systems might be. Uh, So I think it's possible to draw leadership lessons from how someone does a difficult job. And they're the two names that stand out for me two great examples and thank you for sharing why and it you know it is interesting that you've chosen two female leaders and I think with those two we can all understand why how would you describe 
your own leadership style and, and how, I guess, how did that evolve? So I think my style, and I, I should say here, I'm drawing on kind of the three bits of my leadership life, if you like. I mean, obviously, people are interested in my life within the national security community, but I'd also bring out the year I've spent during COVID lockdown doing community leadership, which is a very different uh, set of responsibilities, but I've done it in a similar way. And then looking forward as a change agent and, and using my knowledge and views of the world. I think the way I describe my style is inspire and they will follow. So I like to paint the vision of where we're trying to get to and then make people believe and make them believe in themselves and encourage people to dig deep and find talent that they perhaps didn't even realize they had and then leave the rest up to them. I draw quite a lot of that from my parenting style, which I would describe as benign neglect. I have three boys. My job is very much to ensure they have the skills to be competent when they go into the world by themselves, which means that they're extraordinarily independent and resilient to leave them to bring themselves up wherever you possibly can also makes my life easier. So I think there's a lot in, in leadership of that. If you can get people to do the work for themselves, you achieve a lot more than you might have expected. And certainly often they'll be happier as well in the process. I'd love to understand and explore, Sal, with you where that's come from. Because in running this podcast and everyone listening to it will know that there's not a one-size-fits-all to leadership. And we all know that. But it would be interesting to understand how you've arrived at the values around your leadership style, around Inspire, and they will follow. Were there any defining moments you kind of go, actually, that's the leader I want to be? Where's that stemmed from? Yeah, and it's a great question. I think looking back over 25 years and trying to identify defining moments, uh, the ones that stand out actually are the moments you look on in horror at someone else and think, I do not want to be that person. I do not want to inflict that on somebody else. I think bad managers are great teachers. Unfortunately, it's not necessarily what they're paid to be doing, but you can derive hugely powerful lessons from poor experiences. So I've got a couple that stand out for me. I was given a job fairly early in my career in a technical environment, and I didn't have the skills required to deliver the task that was being asked of me. And as a result, I ended up bored, frustrated. It wasn't productive and it was poor leadership. It was poor management. It was inappropriate use of talent. Um, and I resolved not to be that person and to ensure that I understood the talent that was available to me and people's aspirations and ambitions and stretch and frustrations and to work with that rather than to work against it. I've seen people who don't like people wanting to be leaders. That's not a great starting point. You can learn most aspects of leadership, but if you fundamentally are not interested in the people that you're trying to lead, it's going to be an uphill battle. And I've seen bad behavior from falling asleep in the corner to shouting and swearing at staff. And those cultures and those approaches uh, used to be seen as appropriate at times. They certainly don't get the best out of people. And being on the receiving end of it is, I think, the quickest way to appreciate the impact of that kind of approach. It's interesting, Sal, how you can talk about how bad managers can become great teachers. I love that quote. I'm going to steal it. But often we do learn from what we don't like. And therefore, you know, that helps us to paint a picture of what good does look like. When you think about your own leadership over the past 25 plus years, what would you say has been your biggest challenge and how have you dealt with that? So I think the biggest challenge has been loneliness and leadership is tough. 
But the mantra that I was told when I started out in my career was it's lonely at the top. And I think there's some truth in that, but I also think it's fundamentally wrong. And I am sad that I accepted that as a statement of truth because everyone can have a network and everyone needs support. And I think the leadership is lonely derives from a fairly old school hierarchical view of leadership. In the human digital thinking way of doing things, I always like to invert the pyramid. If you look at leadership as a pyramid where you sit at the top of those you lead, it's a misguided approach. Leadership is a system. The challenges you face, the problems you face are a system. Probably almost nothing that comes your way is unique. So as you get more responsibility, you need more help, not less. You need a better network, not a smaller one. You need more wise advice. The biggest challenge, both personally and professionally, was equating leadership with being in charge and not asking for help when I needed it. And actually, I learned later in my career that at times I didn't know how to ask for help. And all the way back to being at school, I'd been taught that success wasn't an individual thing. And I really think leadership is a team sport. And learning how to change that mindset and shift into leadership as a collective endeavor where you get support and advice and guidance. I don't think that was part of the training when I started, and I hope it is now. Where did you go to get that help, that support, that advice? So I got some really good coaching towards the end of the first part of my career, senior executive coaching that identified that really quite fundamental, I would call it a flaw in the way I was considering things. And I walked out of a one hour session thinking I must ask for help. And I almost literally turned overnight into the manager, the leader who said at the end of every session, I think I need your help with this. How would we do this differently or better? Or how can we help each other? And, and the word help and support just became part of my mantra. That's really interesting. And it also it sounded like it took some time for you to realize that, you know, that actually early on, you did feel lonely as a leader. Eventually, you found that help through coaching and support. Part of it was my personal circumstances. I got promoted very young. I kept getting promoted. I, I was given a lot of senior responsibility with relatively little experience, which is brilliant for someone like me, but also quite daunting. But as I say, that mantra that was articulated of it's lonely at the top meant that I accepted a set of behaviors and a set of conditions for my leadership that were actually fundamentally wrong. And that's quite tough and quite interesting and takes quite a lot of reflection and retrospective thinking to get to the bottom of it and then to fix it. You know, hopefully career version two versus version three, whatever I'm on now, um, can erase that. I know I've talked about the fact that, you know, it can be lonely for leaders. And, you know, and this is not a plug for the virtual roundtables that I run, but as you know, Sal, I get senior execs together regularly so that they can discuss, you know, intimate and confidential environment, their business and leadership challenges with one another. And I know that people enjoy that because it gives them the opportunity, firstly, to hear, oh, wow, yeah, other leaders are struggling with some of the same issues, albeit, you know, they might be in completely different sectors. But what I love about what you're saying there is, and you didn't use these words, but there was a level of creating a vulnerability in yourself to seek for help and support wherever you get that from, whether that be from other people in the organization or from your team or, or most probably even people outside of the organization it can be lonely but only if you let it be is what i'm hearing it can and i think the vulnerability word is really powerful i was revising my twitter bio because the joy of that is you've got to be quite succinct about who you are and if i could describe myself as a vulnerability specialist 
I would love to do so. I'm not sure it's the right word yet. I genuinely think in a world as complex as the one we're in today, we've got to get better at describing what we're not very good at and admitting to mistakes. And I certainly found that a core part of my leadership style was being very open, sometimes searingly honest about my vulnerability and using that to drive change. It's not necessarily the most effective approach. And it's why I stepped away from the civil service. I'd done it for a long time. And it's not necessarily effective because it takes so much out of you as an individual. But if there was a more effective and some way of generating very secure foundations from which to explore vulnerability, I would really encourage leaders to do that because I think we are all human. We all have weaknesses. We do all make mistakes, but also the world is full of mistakes and errors and gray areas. And you can only explore that fully if you're prepared to step back from being very confident and assertive and knowing the answer and be more curious and investigative and thoughtful and inclusive of different ideas and perspectives on why things might be going wrong and why people might need more or different help and support to be their best. You talked about mistakes there. What what would you say on reflection has been your biggest mistake as a leader and what have you learned? So it plays directly into the conversation we've just had. It was forgetting to care for myself and worse, perhaps not seeing the difference between fighting to improve a system and fighting the system. Toxic cultures are toxic. You can change them, but the personal cost is really high and you do have to step away and reflect and recharge. And I think if you are committed and values driven, competitive and all those other good things, you so want to deliver the change that's needed that you get sucked in and if you're not very careful can get sucked under. So it will be better for the next generation is a great value set, but it's a lousy platform for operating at your best. You have to have that foundation in place. I will consciously avoid environments in the future where I don't have those platforms in place uh, because I want to operate at my best. So what is you at your best? When surrounded by brilliant people who are sparking off each other or seeing someone, seeing that light come on in someone when they realize they can be more than even they thought they could be. And if you've helped them on that journey, then I think that's what leadership is fundamentally about. You talked a minute about the biggest mistake was sort of not looking after your, yourself. What was the, the impact? What was the consequence for you in that? The consequence for me was a dawning realization you're not at your best. But I think we all revert to poor behavior when we're frustrated or angry or disillusioned. Those negative emotions can't possibly bring out the best in us. As a result, you personalize the environment around you. So it doesn't become about leadership and the organization and the system. It becomes about you and your values and personalizing your goals and your objectives is, I don't think, a particularly healthy or effective way to operate. And I think you become conscious that you are, you're not at your best and you do that through seeing behaviors that you'd prefer you didn't have. A whole host of less healthy symptoms. If you went to the doctor and said, I just don't feel at my best. I just feel a bit under the weather. I think we need to devise that leadership test. It says, are you really operating at your best? Are you really who you need to be to bring others with you? Because ultimately you do have to have that source of strength. What process would you go through to enable yourself to give you the best chance for you to operate at your best? 
I would, it sounds really fundamental, it's really basic, um, get some sleep, go for a walk. And then, you know, once you are actually rested, your mind is clear, then you can go back to the problem, the challenge, or whatever the issue is that you're facing. And then it's bringing the advice, ask for help. That works for me. You know, I think everybody has their own version of how do I reset? How do I rebalance? How do I ensure I've got a solid platform here? Yes, they do, Sal, of course. they. Do. But it is remarkable how many you know leaders, when I ask them that question, actually, when they really think about it and they think about when they've been at their best, that process is doing those basics. And so anyone listening, you know, I'd really encourage you to think about, are you putting those basics in place in terms of looking after yourself? It's that old adage of being on the aircraft. You put your own oxygen mask on first before you look to help others. And you've got to, you know, that, that process enabling you to be at your best will enable you to be able to support others. What does high performance look like to you, Sal? I'll get it muddled up. Um, never use somebody else's quotes. <laughs> the total is greater than the sum of the parts. That's the right way around, isn't it? It's a group outperforming what could possibly be possible by that team operating as individuals. The best example I've got of this is when I so say one of my roles that I can talk a little bit more freely about from my time within the national security community was putting together the program plan to ensure the Olympics was successful from a security perspective. And, you know, there's, there's obviously some mechanics to that, some processes, there's capability that needs to be built. But fundamentally, when we looked at it, when I took the job on with a year to go, one of the real challenges we had was that it was in the summer holidays. And I worked in an organization full of computer scientists, mathematicians, and people who fundamentally aren't that fussed about sport. <laughs> and telling that community that we were going to be in crisis management mode throughout summer because lots of people were coming to our wonderful country in order to enjoy elite sport wasn't a message that resonated particularly easily the civil service has its very considerable strengths and is very happy to swing into action when bombs go off or when we have folk fighting in far-flung places but the thought of giving up summer holidays and being put onto shift rotors and so on so that people could enjoy sport was a challenge. And so we, as usual, turned it on its head. And we looked at the approach that was being taken nationally and encouraged people to volunteer. And therefore, instead of co-opting people onto shift rotors, we said, who wants to step forward and be part of this? It's going to be amazing. This is probably the last time in our lifetimes that we get the Olympic Games. Third time London was host city and only city ever to host three times, if I recall. And people stepped forward in droves, but they had a really a huge range of skill sets, but they all wanted to be there. And as a result, when we got to the end of it, people realized they had more in, in themselves than they dreamed of having. They'd had fun. They'd bought creativity and new thinking because they were outside of their comfort zones. And we treated it basically as a learning environment, an opportunity to stretch you know, that, that much overused term, continuous personal development, but it genuinely was. It was an opportunity to develop and to contribute and to feel part of something. And when we looked around the team, it had been high performing, but it wasn't people who necessarily considered themselves high performers coming into that role. And that was really special. Great story. And I guess one on reflection that everyone will remember for that time in their career of being part of the Olympic team at, at GCHQ. 
I'm dying to ask a question, and you may not be able to answer it. I don't know. You, you, you talked about Jacinda Ahern earlier on, and talked about her empathy in terms of crisis. Were there moments of crisis where you know that, that you thought actually this is my leadership opportunity and, and chance to demonstrate empathy? What environments or examples of that did you have in your role? Oh, always. I mean, two parts to that, I suppose. One true crisis management is predicting the future and preparing the ground. So if you're in that proper crisis, it's because you didn't get part of your job right in making sure that everything was in place so that it didn't feel like a crisis at the time uh, that you hit that predictable but disruptive event or whatever it is that you are having to retrospectively deal with. So that's part one is, you know, that the thoughtfulness goes into the thinking about what the impact on people's lives will be a year before it happens, before they've even thought that they might be having to deal with childcare crises at six o'clock in the morning or pull people off planes and holidays and explain to them what that looks and feels like. So it's that thoughtfulness and anticipation in a very strategic sense. The second bit is when you're actually in the heat of the crisis, everything that you've done is to ensure that skilled people are on the front line doing what they can to the best of their ability. And at that point, you are precisely useless. So my job would always be to go and get the fish and chips. My car stank for one month because I <laughs> had to get 100 portions of fish and chips in the middle of the night to make sure that people were being fed so that they'd you know, they been working all hours and still there at three, four o'clock in the morning, or you knew they were going to have to still be there at three and four o'clock in the morning. So job one for senior manager is to uh, go and make sure they all get fed. Don't buy fish and chips. They really smell bad. Stick the car out. Leadership lesson. Um, but yeah, once you're into the crisis, the key is to make sure that those with the skill are doing their job to the best of their ability. And your job is to get the fundamentals right. Are they warm fed, got the tools they need, and you start fixing the, the niff-naff and trivia that you don't want skilled people having to deal with. Oh, love it. Thank you. Um, professionally or personally, have you overcome your, your biggest setbacks? Talk. There's a lot of wisdom out there in Planet Human. It's about asking questions, being able to be searingly honest with those very small number of people that you trust implicitly and being able to explain why something's hard and and whether that's your partner or your best and oldest friend or your plants, I talk to plants, whatever or however you vocalize your setback and your feelings and you are honest with yourself. I think that all helps reset, uh, put those foundations in place, get advice and then move on. But also, you know, you're sort of saying about get advice, but I'm not sure if you're getting any advice from the plants. It, actually, just by verbalising some of those challenges, it can help. So the plants help because they tell you that they're coming back next year. And I think in a real setback, it's easy to think, oh, where am I going? What next? And the reality is, you know, the sun keeps shining, the planet keeps turning and there are new doors that open. It doesn't matter what's happened, what's gone wrong. It's about looking forward and keeping an eye on the horizon. And plants are really good at that. Kids are quite good at it. Mm. I used to talk to my spaniel and she'd always look at me and go, well, it, it, life's great. Look, look out of here. It's fantastic. Let's go for a run. And uh, it just put a smile on your face and uh, all of a sudden puts the, the world into perspective. You talked about sort of second generation of, of leaders that, that would learn from you know, others. What advice would you share for, for aspiring leaders in the next generation? 
So having said I lead through inspiration, I should be giving advice on what to do and how to do it well. And instead, I'm going to offer advice on what not to do, which ordinarily I prefer to be more positive. But I, I would say don't build a team through competition. I think we are competitive beasts. I think the future is all about collaboration and having those collaborative skills. There is still a lot of competitive behavior out there. We're competitive beasts. We're tribal. And if you can go in the other direction and benchmark against yourselves rather than against others, welcome difference and embrace those outside your tribe. I think that's inclusion in the true sense of the word. It's still rare enough to stand out when it's done well. I hope and I believe that's what the leadership of the future on this planet will look like. And the earlier and the more effectively people can be encouraged to develop those skills, the better. Fantastic. I would be fascinated to learn, now you've left the security service, what are you learning about being in the commercial world and what's been that dawning realisation? Uh, and what does the future hold for you? What have I learned about the commercial world? It's really challenging for an ex-public sector employee to realise that this economy thing works around money and you do actually have to think about it and work quite hard for it. And it drives belief systems and behaviours. And of course, those can be and are often aligned with other belief systems and behaviors, but that's a whole new world for me. It's been fascinating mentoring some startups and realizing how they get funded and how they're developing their capabilities and building their companies. Whole new language, whole new world, absolutely fascinating. So again, I think leadership is all about learning and being willing to embrace different approaches, different landscapes. Uh, and I'm certainly having to do that. Did you say, what does the future hold as well? What's the future hold for you? I'm still working it out. It's such a privilege having been able to have a sabbatical year. I was supposed to be traveling, but ended up doing community leadership instead for obvious reasons. So I've had a, a year to reflect and time with my family, which has been really important and brilliant, uh, watching some of the difficulties that our communities are facing in lockdown and will no doubt face beyond lockdown. The issue I would most love to get my teeth into is the climate change emergency. You know, I've got those crisis management skills and system leadership abilities that I think are directly relevant to that crisis. But it's a difficult world to cut into without sector-specific expertise. So I will continue to mull on that one. Future holds more time with family. I've got three teenage boys who I'm very conscious time is precious and marching on. So I will not lose that and ensure there's balance in my life. Lots of mentoring, helping others to succeed. But fundamentally, my ambition is to persuade very busy leaders, very time pressured leaders, that they actually need to step back and think differently if they are really going to succeed. The digital world, the big data world, the pressures that are on people, there is a different approach, but it's a very different one from traditional thinking uh, and management and leadership approaches. So that's where my efforts will be directed in the main. What is that think differently? What do you think leaders and managers need to, when you talk about think differently, what is that? So I think it's the inversion from what can we control to what can we influence. So we are used to operating in a world where we believe that the levers are there for us to reach. And when there are problems, it's about management and controls and reducing risk. In reality, the world is so connected. We are living in a huge system of systems. And the best we can do at any given time is to have positive influence 
And that is a mindset shift, I believe, from a from a control mindset. It's very much like the conversation that you'll be familiar with, Phil, over the last few generations of the move from management to leadership. It's a move from control to influence. We've got to do that at scale, not just the humans in the loop, but also the technologies that we're operating with, the capabilities that we're using to deliver whatever it is that we do. On, on the personal side, give us an insight to Sally Walker outside of work. What, beyond talking to my plants? Um, <laughs> I still love team sport. I'm a mum, so that takes quite a lot of time. My husband runs his own company, so he gets mentoring and advice whether he likes it or not. I still love team sports. I, I sometimes regret having once been a hockey goalie because occasionally I get persuaded to put pads on. It seems to hurt quite a lot now. So, yeah, a network of good friends, a bit of sport, lots of outdoor life. Um and lots and lots of thinking to keep my rather overactive brain engaged and connected and purposeful. And some quick fire questions to finish up on. What's your guilty pleasure? I really, really thought twice about whether I should admit to this one. My guilty pleasure is Candy Crush. My God, I hate that thing. The game on the phone. Oh. <laughs> I love it. I wasn't expecting that. What One thing that you'd put in room 101. Candy Crush. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, you can't you can't have both, all right. What's one of your most annoying traits? Uh switching off when others are talking to me. My brain goes elsewhere and people see me checking out the room. Uh, do they see that? Yeah, that's as I've got that occasionally. And lastly, what makes you smile? Uh my family being idiots, and so I, I smile quite a lot. Let's uh, thank you very much for your time today. Really insightful, very interesting. Not only the career that you've had, but the answers that you gave, uh, I think, a fabulous insight to your leadership style. If, and folks, if you're listening and you want to, to have the opportunity to meet Sally in person and speak to her and work with her, she'll be presenting at our Purposeful Leaders event on the 29th of September at Kew Gardens. Please visit our website, which is clarityleadership.co.uk for more information. Sal, thanks very much for today. Brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you soon. Leadership Confessions from Clarity Leadership. Email hello at clarityleadership.co.uk and subscribe to receive every episode as it's released.